watched my show for any length of time, uh, there tends to be an expectation I've seen that length is an indicator of quality. In other words, if I have something you know I really want to delve into, it's going to be a longer video. And that is, to an extent, true. But what I've found, especially as I'm going through Voyagers, I have the weird situation where I have the occasional episode that's really, really good that I just don't have much to say about other than to praise it. There's not much to dissect about the episode, right? So if this ends up being a short episode, please don't think that's an indicator of quality. This is the definitive Harry Kim episode, and we're going to talk about that right off the beginning. Harry Kim, as I mentioned and talked about back in The Killing Game, was neglected. Not He wasn't actually treated badly as a character. It's not like they were a character assassinating him like what happened so often over on Enterprise. It's more like he wasn't a character. He was furniture, for all intents and purposes. And there were very few exceptions where he could break out of that mold. I've often talked about how incredibly pathetic and terrible that is, because Garrett Wong is not exactly an, a bad actor, and he had a great deal of enthusiasm for the part. So every time he was given something to do, actually do, he was like, yeah, and just jumped into it. And The Killing Game is a good example of this. This episode came to be because of two things. The idea of Voyager being in the ice and bringing back the Harry Kim we had in The Killing Game. I find it amusing that the, the writers of Voyager thought the only way we can make an awesome Harry Kim is to make him be in the future or something like that. But regardless, this is really, really, really an awesome episode. And I just want to get that out there right here. I literally just finished watching it as my usual. You know, I watch it and then I immediately start recording. Uh, this time there was a break of about five seconds. I had everything set to go and I just hit record right after I stopped watching the episode. I'm just still a little teary. Because of that coda. This is a phenomenal episode. Timeless is one of my favorite episodes in all of Voyager. It is wide up there at the top. And I'm going to try and discuss why and hope and hope, hopefully share some of that enthusiasm with you. But the other thing I want to mention here is a couple little tidbits. Because this is a very flawed episode. Weird, right? But seriously, it is. Now, first of all, this is an episode done by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski. In case you haven't been paying attention... That duo has been responsible for a lot of the truly good stuff Voyager has pushed out, uh, basically from about season three and onwards. And it's also worth noting that both those people tend to have very serious flaws when it comes to writing. Joe Minoski is the screw continuity, we're just doing character stuff writer. And Brennan Braga is the I'll do whatever I feel like as long as it's different writer. But the two of them definitively and provably across the years, when they work together, can make some amazing stuff happen. But just like in Scorpion, which is another episode they did, it's obvious that there are flaws to the storytelling style. It still produces a great episode, but this is something I want to mention, though. I know this is going to sound weird, and I know only like five of my viewers are going to have any idea what I'm talking about. But somewhat recently, to my perspective, this is back in August, I've had certain individuals, plural, by the way, lest anyone think I'm singling them out, who have been bashing me for my enjoyment of StarCraft II. And they have been pointing out the flaws of StarCraft II. And some of those people have been uh, well-meaning, or not well-meaning, but I mean, they, they've been discussing it. They've been using proper words and not just yelling or shrieking or telling me I'm stupid. And some of them have just been telling me I'm stupid and, call, and, and passively or aggressively or passively aggressively insulting me for my opinion. But the thing is, the one thing that's the common thread is, yes, StarCraft II is flawed. A lot of things are flawed. In fact, this is going to sound weird, Everything's flawed. Final Fantasy VI is flawed. Lord of the Rings movies are flawed. The original Star Wars movies are flawed. 
you know, no matter what you hold on a pedestal, it's flawed. That's its nature. We are flawed creatures. We make flawed creations. Bam. Very simple, right? There's no such thing as perfection. So, especially in the entertainment industry. So my, my point for bringing this up is the difference, and I know I keep saying this, but I, I just keep handing this issue, so I just keep feeling like I have to keep restressing it. The difference between something I love and something I hate is how much the good outweighs the inevitable bad. Scorpion was a flawed two-parter. Killing Game was a flawed two-parter. StarCraft II is a flawed game. Final Fantasy VI is a flawed game. But what distinguishes these is the good completely outweighs them. However, in the interest of fairness, we are going to discuss the flaws of Timeless right now. Right at the beginning. So, first and foremost, this is a Will They Get Home Again episode. Now, I say that with a bit of amusement because the first time I mentioned this to a friend, this was, well, many, many years ago, his response was shock. It never occurred to him that this was, was, this was a Will They Get Home This Week episode. Because they've been doing so many of those. I mean, for God's sakes, like the second or third episode of the entire series was a Will They Get Home This Week plot for, for crying out loud. And, it's, and I've always argued that it's a dumb plot on the face of it because, of course, they aren't. But I am wrong in that argument. It's true. I am wrong. Uh, or was wrong, I suppose is a better way to put that. Because it's not the plot that's really the relevant part. It's how you execute it. If I can use another uh, example here, and this is actually going to be coming up later this month in the episode Counterpoint, romance that does not involve main characters in television is usually pointless, and it's usually by the numbers, there for its own sake. The same way, and it's the exact same thing, it's completely analogous between the will they get home this week plot. Because we know the answer is no, and we know that the romance isn't going to last. So unless you're going to do something with it, it's wasted air. It's pointless. And doing it for its own sake is not entertaining. But what they did in Timeless was they did something with it. They showed how Voyager was making strides towards getting home, actually starting to succeed at shortening the journey. They showed how they were adapting to their new circumstance, actually made it felt like they were out there on the frontier using the, the jury rig technology and all that stuff rather than just the, the same old trip home like they were always doing before. Um, they really, really went into Harry Kim as a character and Chakotay and Tessa and the Doctor while we're on it. They even had a good scene with Seven for crying out loud. They did something with it, in other words. That's the other funny thing, because the argument could be made that this is a it-was-all-a-dream episode. For those of you not aware of the actual concept of that, the trope, if you will, for it-was-all-a-dream, it doesn't actually have to involve sleeping or dreaming. It's just, you know, the reset button is basically hit at the end of the episode and all of it is wiped away. Now, I've explained how this can be a terrible, horrible, bad thing. Most notably in another Voyager episode, whose name I forget, but it's when they come across the planet that destroyed itself and then they, you know, they undo that and then it was all wiped away at the end. Um, it was, again, a season one episode. But it's the execution, once more, that matters. What does this episode have that that one didn't? LeVar Burton directing. I just want to start with that, because for those of you who don't know, LeVar Burton, the gentleman who plays Geordi LaForge over on Star Trek The Next Generation, is an amazing director and producer. The man has, has, has is, I, he's got tons of my praise. He's right up there uh, with Jonathan Frakes in terms of directing chops. The man knows what he's doing. And he really puts in a great performance directing this episode. He's also actually in the episode basically as a cameo, which is also great, but I'll talk about that later. Amazing special effects. Foundation imaging really, really hit the wire in order to try and push out the effects of this episode, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, amazing chemistry. Great writing, which was all focused on characterization and character growth. 
lots of uh, showing without telling kind of kind of storytelling. There was a lot of things that they just kind of implied, and and you know it was just their undercurrent kind of a thing. It was incredibly well executed. This is what I mean when I say well executed. I'm just hitting these points, so you know I'm not just tossing out a buzzword here. Because I can hit the points if I have to. <laughs> so, and there are now there are other flaws to this episode. Like I said, okay, so will they get home again? Plot. Okay, they did that well. It's all a dream, but they did that well. It's also worth noting, I would actually argue this isn't quite an all, it's all a dream, because history was changed, and there are effects from that. We know it was changed. It's not wiped away completely. That pisses me off. If they just never knew what happened, that would irritate me. But there's that one little message from Harry Kim, and that, that ties it up in a neat little bow, because now we know. Now we know it went bad. We know how lucky we were to have avoided it. We, all the events that happened in the episode actually happened. Even if they didn't affect this crew, they affected the crew, if you, if you follow my logic here. I know this is kind of a time, time as an endless circle uh, situation, but it's true. These events mattered. They weren't wiped away at the end. And in my opinion, the it was all a dream thing is when the events were completely wiped away. The, the effect of the episode or the book or game or whatever is non-existent, as if it never happened, nothing would change kind of a situation. Uh, a later episode, Relativity, I believe, which I think is also this month, is another example of everything being wiped away, except it does have some canon that continues forward. Or no, I'm not thinking Relativity, I'm thinking of uh, Fractured, which is actually a season 7 episode. Whatever. The other big flaw, actually it's two flaws, but they're, they're tied in together. So Voyager has made this big experimental drive that they haven't tested. Let me say that again. I want you to imagine you have a ship, just real life, a ship, uh, you know, cruiser or whatever, and you want to install this big brand new drive in it that you have never tested in action. You've never done anything with it. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, well, how can you test it while it's installed? I hate to point this out, but they could do that on Voyager. <laughs> they could actually test it just like they actually do in the episode. So they install the drive, start celebrating it, it being in there, and that's when Tom is like, hang on, I think something's a little bit off. And he goes ahead and does the tests and verifies that, yeah, something's a little bit off. And this engine that they've spent however much time, they imply it's been a long time. All this time and effort and work making is defunct. And Edsel, as Tom himself so accurately puts it. That, that, I'm sorry, that's a plot hole. <laughs> Even I can't believe the Voyager crew is that incompetent to, to not do that. And then, this gets even better... And then the next flaw is the fact that why don't they keep using the drive? Now, they did bother to put in a line. I, I imagine this is Braga put this in because it feels like his style of thing. They put in a line that whatever they were doing to make the ship, they made temporary crystals. You know, they, they synthesized these new crystals which or found these new crystals, whatever. I know, I know, you're, you're saying super dilithium, but bear with me because it took a lot of effort and time to make them and they go away soon. You know, even if you don't use the drive, they simply will not last that long. So they can't just use the drive forever. Good. Good writing. Makes sense. Problem. Why don't they just keep doing 15-second jumps home? All the, They say right out, all the everything's fine until 17 seconds in. So why not just go psh, 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 hopping, you know? This is a thing that actually happens in most other science fiction where you can't just warp straight to your destination, where you do hyperspace routes or going across the jump gates or God knows what other thing. It's, it's a fairly common concept. We kind of could do that in real life, too. Uh, not the space version, but the ground-based version. So, I mean, why, do, why is this even an issue? 
And these are flaws, and it is worth mentioning these are flaws, because these flaws are the driving force of the episode. In other words, these flaws exist, the, these problems exist artificially. And they exist to drive the episode, and for no other reason. They don't make logical sense, they don't actually fit anything, they're just there to drive the actual meat of the episode. And that's why they are flaws. That is bad writing. Fair is fair. I still love the crap out of this episode because they do so much with it. Let's get into that, shall we? First of all, I would postulate that of the nearly five years of Voyager I've been watching with you as we've been going through this, this is the best teaser I've seen to date. It's a long one, but it's perfect. I mean, it is literally perfect. You see two people beam down, and you hear the noise, so the audio cues you in, these are Starfleet. But they're heavily obscured, so you don't know who they are. In fact, we don't know who they are the entire teaser. So it's like, okay, okay, two Starfleet teams, all right. And they're scanning for something. Okay, and your first thought is, this is Voyager. They're scanning yet another planet to find more deuterium, even though deuterium is the most common substance in the universe. <laughs> I'm sorry, that never stops being funny to me. It took them to, like, season seven to figure that out. And so they're just like, ah, eh, whatever. And you, so you're just like, okay. But what they did properly was it kept dragging on. But in a good way. I, Bear me out. Because as you're sitting and watching, it's like, why are we watching this? And about 20 seconds pass, and it's like, it's just long enough for you to start to question it. It get it, it lasts just enough time that your brain starts going, well, maybe this isn't what I think it is. And that's when the, the camera pans out and we see Voyager, and it's just like, you know, it's just that total shock moment. Because at that point, you're like, oh, God, is that the Voyager crew? Is that another Voyager? Is that an alternate timeline? Is this the future? Is this... I mean, there's so many possibilities there to just explode in your mind. Perfect teaser. Completely grips your attention. The very first time I watched this, as it was coming out, I remember getting on the phone. I distinctly recall this. I, I had a whole uh, uh, line, uh, curly cord phone, the kind you probably have never even heard of. And I had to get up, grab it, and drag it over towards the TV and be like, Mom! Because I knew Mom was watching it at her. Mom, did you see that? And she and she's immediately like, oh my god! <laughs> Do you think it was the... No, I think it was I think it was the actual voice. I think it's a time travel thing. Are you sure? You know, we were just... We were so into it. It was awesome. I loved it. I also want to give huge props again to image uh, the, the Foundation Imaging for the effect of the Voyager and the Ice. It may not look impressive, but trust me, the amount of effort required to do something like that is insane. They've, they encountered huge uh, logistical issues with actually getting that working, because I know this may sound weird, but if something's about 10 feet under the ice, you can't see it, okay? So you had to do something with it. So they, they, they actually spent several times, they actually wanted to do a thing where like, here's the ice level, right? And so you can see Voyager just jutting out of it kind of thing. And they were shot down. No, we need to see Voyager completely encased in the ice. It was a very important visual image. So they basically had to cheat. The image you see is part rendering, part picture, you know, part, uh, uh, what do they call that? Matte painting. And that's not how it would actually work. This actually happens a lot in fiction uh, when you want something to look a certain way, but that way is not realistic. You cheat and you just make it look the way you want to, even though physics doesn't apply that way, right? So, for all intents and purposes, some of the people at Foundation uh, Imaging made the comment it looked like Voyager is just underwater because that's effectively what they did. They basically rendered water over it in certain sections and ice and the rest so you could see the whole ship because otherwise it would just be blocked. There wouldn't be enough light coming through to show it, right? Blah, blah, blah. But anyways, they did a great job of it. I made a point of counting. There's actually three separate times they show off that same shot, and that's a good thing. Not only does it mean they get mileage out of it, but it means we get to enjoy it three times as well, which is awesome. Now, one of the, I mentioned that visual storytelling thing. 
obviously later on Harry Harry Kim's excuse me future Harry Kim's arc is very very obvious and very laid out for bear in a great and powerful scene but right at the beginning first time we see him his tone his posture and his expression are all completely different Garrett Wong is not the most subtle actor I've ever seen, but he does a great job of having a great difference in, in, in the contrast in how he plays future Kim versus present Kim. And so you immediately tell something's screwed up. And the fact that we're seeing Harry Kim and, and Chakotay, we kind of fill in the pieces ourselves um, because, you know, we're not stupid. Now, uh, I also really, really like the, uh, the Seven of Nine scene, excuse me, the Seven scene, where she gets drunk. She has zero alcohol tolerance, apparently. Um, although it's funny that I say that apparently because actually that'll actually come up in a future episode. Seriously, it will. But she has very little alcohol tolerance, and so she starts behaving drunkenly, but in a way that is very Borg. You can just feel Joe Manoski's, uh fingerprints all over the dialogue because he's, he's really, really good at dialogue and inner character uh, interplay between characters. And so the way she talks is still very Borg, very Seven, but it is drunk Seven. It, it's hard to explain. Just watch the scene. You'll see what I mean by that. It's really good. Um, I also really love the chemistry between Janeway and Chakotay. It's very warm, very close, and yet it always... It, it, it's obvious to me what they were going for. They wanted you to think it was leaning towards romantic, but they never actually do it. They never actually show any romantic entanglements between the two. As I've mentioned before, in the minds of the actors and the writers, by the end of Scorpion, that thread was cut. No more romantic entanglements between the two. And they'd only barely teased at that like a couple of previous episodes prior to that, right? But they kept the connection. They kept the familiarity. They kept the warmth between the two. And I find that interesting because it reminds me of something that Guinan said all the way back in Best of Both Worlds. What Picard and I had was closer than friends and closer than family. And then the line keeps going on about how she's letting him go. Um, but that line, in my opinion, really expresses how Chakotay and Janeway have grown, at least when they're written properly. Namely, it's basically a Nakama situation. I know I keep using that word. Look it up if you don't know what it means. I don't want to get into it. Um... I also like how Janeway continues her character arc from Night, the episode we covered not too long ago. This is the Janeway who is crushed, buckled, cr you know, just <laughs> by the burden of the command and the guilt for the mistakes that she has made. And this will be a recurring theme in several episodes that heavily focus Janeway over the next two, two or so years. She only gets one scene where it really comes up here. But there's a scene where she and Chakotay are talking about the risks, and Chakotay is cautioning. Chakotay, the Maquis commander, the commander, let's, let's drop the Maquis thing, because Lord knows Voyager did, but the commander, the tactical military-minded individual is the one who's like, this is a bit much, and she's the one who says, no, we're doing it. You know, we, this, we, we need to fix this, we need to make this right, you know. It's that same push. She is pushing this situation and herself because she needs this. And again, it was not actually the tactically sound decision. I'm just going to say that. It, speaking as an armchair, admittedly as an armchair captain, I would not have made that same choice. But you can see why she made it. So I'm not really criticizing the episode. In fact, I'm not even really criticizing her. I, I might do that in character. You know, hey, Janeway. Um... <laughs> The the dialogue is the dialogue just clicks. I, I just have a note note here that just says the dialogue is amazing. Even amongst the guest star, uh, I wrote down her name, Tessa, I believe, 
Right here, Tessa, yes. Uh, the dialogue between Tessa and the Doc and future Kim and future Chakotay and all the people in the past, too, it all just flows perfectly. Most of this episode is actually about the character developments and the character interactions. The actual drama of the episode still has tension to it, still has strength to it. And I think the real reason for that, if I can diverge for a second, is the tension of the episode is not will they get home, because we know they won't. It's not will they ever survive, because we know they won't. It's how are they going to deal with the situation. The how has become interesting because of the way it's being presented. In the future, we have the, the difficulties of Captain LaForge, which, by the way, great cameo. Uh, i just like to take an aside. I have a note here about it, too. The camaraderie, the weirdly, bizarrely perfect camaraderie between Dakota and Jordy was amazing. And it really showed the uh, similarities of understanding. The two men obviously had a great deal of respect for each other and understanding for each other's position. Chakotay knew that if he was in Jordy's position, he'd be doing the same thing Jordy was. And Jordy knew if he was in Chakotay's position, he'd be doing the same thing Chakotay would. And so there's that, you know, there's, there's no animosity there. There's no... It would have been too easy to make the Starfleet captain someone other than Geordi, just some Starfleet captain, and make him just Captain Asshole number 37. Because we've seen how many assholes captain ships in Starfleet, especially in the TNG era. So it wouldn't be hard to just be like, huh, come in and I shan't. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. But instead we have that warmth, which again speaks to the general episode in, in, in general, which is funny given the Frozen and Ice thing and the background I have chosen for this particular episode. But the, uh, the interplay and the dialogue between them is amazing. And the, the, the threat. Okay, so we have the threat of Geordi. Uh, and, and in the past, we have the threat of, of the collapsing thing. And they make an interesting choice. They show us the catastrophe. Now, that is a unique choice. And I feel like they did that specifically for the money shot purposes. They wanted to show the effects. They wanted to let the effects team just stretch and really, really showcase just how bad this is. And I'm sorry. When I saw Voyager hit, I, vis I literally physically cringed. And all I could think of was how many dozens of people literally died the second that ship first hit and bounced, skipped off the ice. Because that's bad. And then it, yeah. And I like how they don't show us any more of the inside of the ship after, the, after Voyager actually hits. That's good. So they, sh they show us the disaster, and it takes away from our imagination of it. It takes away from what we can see of it, but they do a good, play good job of showcasing it. So this is just kind of a neutral thing for me, which is why I mention it here. I'm curious what you think, as ever. Um, the, the directing, I've talked about the directing before, of course, um, because uh, LeVar Burton is an amazing director. They do this great thing where they, the scenes cut back and forth naturally between the two dilemmas of the past, or excuse me, the present and the future, and just shift right back and forth between them, in some cases so seamlessly that it took me a second or two to realize we had shift perspectives. It was really well done. And the music actually <laughs> contributed uh, for once to everything uh, working out. There's also some really great foreshadowing. It's tiny. But there's a scene where Kim goes, uh, future Kim is talking and says, if you get this, you owe me one. And then he shuts off the message. And the funny thing is, it's simultaneously obvious and subtle. Because we know that he's leaving a message there. It's right on display. It's like someone just hold up a stop sign. So it's obvious. But the moment someone points out the stop sign, he just says, oh, sorry. And puts it away as if it was nothing. And no further attention or heed is paid to it. Even in the scene, it happens until the coda, when it actually comes back and pays off. So that's a nice little boomerang. Uh, boomerang uh, Chekhov's boomerang, I think is what that's called. There's a term for that. But anyways, it's really well done. The I mentioned the camaraderie, uh, the disaster. So 
Harry's arc is obvious, and I'll talk about that in a second. But what I like is what we see into the other characters. First of all, the Doctor is almost... Obviously, he's self-interested, self-concerned. He's like, oh, God, this is horrible. And yet, when his life is... It is possible to literally offer his life on the line to salvage the crew, he does so without even a flicker of hesitation. I like that. It is very much the Doctor and very in keeping with his personality. I also like how it is the Doctor who not only convinces Kim to, to pull himself out of it a little bit, but more importantly, come up with the alternate plan. You see, Harry... The, the gentleman, I guess I'll talk about Harry now because that segues nicely. Harry was the one with the survivalist guilt. Now let's be clear about something really quick. Real, realism mode for a moment. Survivalist guilt is a terrible, terrible thing. And there's no answer for it. It doesn't exist. There is no way to make that better. Okay? The best you can do is try to find your personal method of living with it. That's all. That's all you can do. Now... It is possible to do that. It is possible to move on from it. But it is still a horrible burden. And to be honest, you will probably never be the same person again. I know someone personally who has never gotten over survivalist guilt. Now that person, and I might even say a gender to make sure that person's identity remains secret. That person has done everything in their power to keep going from this point onward. And they do have a life now. A life, not an existence. But that survivalist guilt has never really left them. And every now and again, it just kind of crops up. And they just kind of feel it. They are a different person as a result of that. So Harry, Harry Kim has been living with 15 years of that. 15 years of it. And yet he has been living with the worst kind of hope. Vague hope. The vague idea that he might be able to fix things. Because this is Star Trek, and time travel exists in Star Trek, and he knows that. I would bet you money that Harry Kim of 15 years ago was already thinking about how to undo history, about how to change history and fix this problem, 15 years ago. Because he knows it's possible. It is an irony that if Starfleet had helped him, he would have probably been able to do so with less damage overall to the timeline. Because he could have accomplished it in less than 15 years. Starfleet gave up on that, of course. But uh, And I'll talk about the time thing in just a moment, because there's a thought there. But the other interesting thing I want to point out is Harry, the way he acts up until the climactic scene is closed. Like, nothing matters to him. Just harsh, blunt, I don't have time for this. He's almost Borg-like in his presentation. And yet when that scene hits, when he realizes he failed them, he is actually yelling, screaming, in, in, in a combination of horror and guilt and pain. Because that's what he's actually been feeling this whole time. 15 years he's been feeling that way. And it's all been bottled up this whole time. And he realizes now at the climax, when he can finally make things right, when he can finally move on from this horrible burden, he fails. And he can't deal with that. But this is where things get interesting. Because he fails at succeeding. Now, I know that sounds weird, but my point is, it is the doctor who points out that success is not the only thing on the menu. There's such a thing as cutting your losses. There's such a thing as withdrawing, tactical retreat kind of a mentality. The doctor, the one interested in saving lives, is the one who points out, we can shut them down so we at least save their lives. I like that. And again, it speaks volumes of both of their characters. Before I talk about the time thing, too, I want to talk about Chakotay. Chakotay obviously believed in this mission as well. That doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, <laughs> as weird as that sounds, again, the Maquis commander. I'm going to put emphasis on the Maquis point this point. What are the Maquis at their core? 
We are people who are willing to do a wrong in order you know, to do something that we know is wrong and we acknowledge is wrong in order to combat greater wrongs or to accomplish greater goods. We feel that bending or breaking the rules is acceptable if the price is right, if it is going to save lives and save people, right? It's all about morals, ethics, that kind of thing. So it's no surprise to me at all that Chakotay would be someone who would just say, yep, change the timeline. Why? Because it will save 150 lives. And that's just the start thing, because then you add to the fact that it will save 150 lives of my crew. And then you add the personal connections he had to so many of that crew, most notably to uh, Bellana and to Janeway. Of course he's going to help out. But here's where it gets interesting for me. Tessa, this guest star, has a surprising amount of characterization for only being on screen for this episode and effectively having her relationship wiped out of reality as a result of it. This is a woman who goes through with this idea knowing full well that if they succeed, she's wiped away from, you know, her relationship with Chakotay is wiped away from existence. She may, and indeed from what we understand, will never meet him. But she does it anyways. That act speaks volumes. And I like it because it's something Star Trek fails at so, so often. Love. Love is inherently a very selfless act. There is selfishness in love, too. Of course there is. But it is inherently selfless. It is about how much you care for that person. She clearly understands how important it is to Chakotay to right what he believes is a terrible wrong. And even though she will, for all intents and purposes, lose him, and, for, and in every way will no longer have any of the joy or wonders that they had together. She cares about him sufficiently that she does not even think, at least not that we see, about turning around, about not doing it. She stays there to the bitter end. That scene where she's holding his hand right there at the end, acknowledging that this was the path she chose without regret. That speaks volumes right there. And again, it's something that Star Trek so often fails at. Which is one of the reasons I feel like pointing it out, because it's awesome. But one last thought before I get to the time thing. One of my favorite individual scenes in all of Voyager is in this episode. And it's the scene where Harry is, you know, the doctor, you know, pleasure to have you, doctor. Doctor's like, I, I, it, was a, it was a pleasure to be of service. Takes the thing, punches it in, punches it in, screams, yes! At, at just with sheer exuberant jubilation, knowing he got the message through, knowing knowing 100% that he succeeded seconds before he dies. That scene is so powerful. I'm actually tearing up a little bit just thinking about it. But the other thing, and this is the little thing, but I love it. The comm unit was open. Harry and Chakotay were talking openly through the comm while this was happening. So Chakotay's standing there, grim and resigned, with her. And the last thing he hears before he dies is Harry screaming at the top of his lungs, Yes! I personally like the idea that Chakotay, in his final moments, knew they succeeded. That, that gives me, that, that makes me smile, that idea. Last thought before I go. Where are the time cops? Now, this is an interesting concept. If Star Trek was done properly, there would be an overarching group who keeps track of long-term continuity across the entire franchise. It's similar to a way that Star Wars did it during certain periods of Star Wars history. It hasn't always been that way, and indeed is not that way now. But 
I think this is the truth. This, I, I think this will be the best way to do things, especially for such a show that spans across so much, so much, and also in, includes movies and other works which are officially declared non-canon. But you know, you get my point, right? There's keeping things organized so that the the franchise, the setting overall, is improved is a good thing, right? Why am I bringing this up now? Because this could have tied in beautifully with Enterprise. I'm serious. The Temporal Cold War, which I will talk about someday, probably, was a disaster. But it was only a disaster because they didn't think about it. They didn't have a plan. They had a cool idea, and it was a cool idea. And they did nothing with it. And it was a mess. And so they, is basically a result there. The only thing that ever came out of that that was good was the Zindi arc. And even that basically was not really related to the Cold War per se. But I'm getting off topic. My reason for bringing this up, though is if they had been tracking everything from the beginning, the seeds of the Temporal Cold War could have been sown, and indeed should have been sown, in Voyager. How many times does Voyager time travel? How many times do they encounter other people time traveling? It's already happened multiple times, counting this episode. Although it is worth noting this episode is about altering time, not traveling through time, but I digress. Point being, though, the point I'm leading towards is why didn't the Time Cops, you know, the Time Federation, blah, 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 try to intervene here? Why didn't they try to change history here? I will point out that in a few episodes, an episode called Relativity Boulevard, where the entire plot is the Time Cops trying to stop someone from destroying Voyager. The implication here, and I really wish they'd done this, and again, if they planned this out, this would work perfectly. The implication is that Voyager was an integral part of history. Was, a, was an incredibly powerful, important part of history for the Delta Quadrant, for all the people they pass, and of course for the Federation and the Alpha and Beta Quadrants when they get home. And so the idea here is this act of time alteration allows Voyager to continue onward. They don't cheat. They don't get Voyager all the way home. But they do save Voyager's lives. And I honestly feel that the Time Cops... I, I need to stop calling them that because I keep thinking of Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, the Time... I can't say time police, because then we got a Doctor Who reference going there. You know what I mean. The time people, seeing the situation, probably said, okay, we'll allow that. Because it fixes one of the biggest problems. It's also worth noting, it could be considered to be a flaw, the way the new timeline worked out with the future Harry and future Kote. In fact, it wouldn't even surprise me if the time people were actually involved in helping them, helping uh, Chakotay and Kim to accomplish some of the things they did to ensure they could alter the timeline the way they did in a relatively non-intrusive manner, if you follow me. I mean, what would you prefer? Some random guy comes in and says, you should not do this thing, it will destroy your ship, and then hem-ha, hem-ha, and then they survive. Or Harry Kim str struggling against all odds with the aid of Chakotay and his lover and the Doctor, and Seven technically, managed to barely salvage the ship and save all their lives. Which sounds more appealing to you from a storytelling perspective and from the perspective of maintaining order and removing understanding and knowledge of the fact that there are time cops. I love this episode. It's a great episode. I hope you enjoyed. I have no idea how long I've been talking. Probably a short episode, like I said. Uh, next week, we'll be continuing with more of Season 5. The Weird Season. See you around, guys. Oh, wait, wrong thing. The forge to Delta Flyer. Our sensors are reading an overload in your warp matrix. Lower your shields. We'll beam you out of there. I appreciate the offer, Captain. But the answer's no. I suggest you get to a safe distance. Warning. 
Warp core breach in 45 seconds. Harry, now would be a good time. Mr. King. It's losing power. Warning. Warp core breach in 30 seconds. Emitter. It's got its own power source. Would it be enough? It's our only chance. Glad you could join us, Doc. It's been a pleasure. Warning. Warp core breach in 15 seconds. Chakotay, I'm giving this one more try. Warning. Warp core breach in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, yes!